to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Hello and welcome to the Retail Smarts Podcast. In a stunning change of pace today, it is me, producer Beck, who is interviewing Dominique Lamb, CEO of the National Retail Association. Dominique, how are you today? I'm so well, and I'm excited about this. And in fact, I think we should throw to our listeners and see who wants to interview me um, as a bit of fun because I don't often get interviewed about a lot of things anymore. So super happy, super happy to chat about my most recent experiences. So over to you. Yeah, maybe we should have a competition and people can write in with the topics they want to talk about. What a good idea. I would love to do it. All the controversial topics. I was recently very disappointed with the lack of controversy in my Rui and Ash <laughs> podcast. Anyway, Rita Beck, queen of controversy. <laughs> oh, my gosh, queen of controversy, yes. Um, so we have had the amazing pleasure of having you go to Rome for the World Retail Congress a few weeks ago. Tell me what that was like. Well, I think, you know, I think that Australians around the country would sympathise um, with the fact that it was obviously very freeing in the sense that we could leave the country. I think as a um, an avid traveller, just the process of actually being able to kind of plan and, and get out um, and about and, and see what was happening around the world was really, really liberating. But more importantly, certainly from a retail perspective, what is happening across the world and certainly what is happening in, in Europe and um, certainly from retail leaders and, and the different perspectives that we got to see um, throughout Asia, you know, the Middle East, the US, as well as Europe was really, really inspiring and has, you know, kind of renewed my faith um, in in our experience in Australia because, you know, things have been pretty tough and whilst we always try and look ahead about what that means, um, we haven't had a lot of stimulus to do that because, you know, of course, floods, um, you know, food shortages, um, COVID issues. I mean, it's been kind of one thing after another. And, um, yeah, it was great just to see the experiences across the world. Absolutely. Um, I think something that we've heard a lot about in the past two weeks, both at World Retail Congress and then Retail Fest on the Gold Coast, is the rise of the conscious consumer. What's that looking like in Europe? Well, I think it's non-negotiable now. I think that, you know, there was a time where, you know, in effect retailers would say to you, you know, we're moving to this values proposition and we've got, you know, this concept of consumer activism and, you know, more than ever this is now a non-negotiable for consumers when it comes to the brands that they follow. And part of what we saw at the the World Retail Congress was that Edelman – you know, the Edelman Trust Survey was presented um, by somebody from Edelman that talked about the fact that now the expectation around the world is that faith is being placed in business leaders to make the right decision. It's no longer in government. It's no longer in journalists. In fact, they, we have absolutely no faith in anything that we hear on a political um, spectrum and we have no faith in anything that we hear from journalists anymore. But what we do believe um, is business leaders and what we do expect from business leaders is that they make conscious decisions to improve um, the planet and improve their employee experience and and just make, I guess, the right social decisions. And look, some of what we saw was, you know, um, there were various people that obviously shared the stage across a three-day period. The, the, one of the founders from Whole Foods certainly got up and at the end of his speech made, you know, a very pointed um 
Well, it took some time to talk about the Ukraine, to talk some t- take some time about what that meant and, and what they were doing as a business in response to those things. Um, the CEO of Illy Cafe, you know, also was able to talk about some of the things that he's put in place um, with UNICEF to enable refugee children to be able to continue their studies and not have to go back, you know, a couple of years because maybe they've moved somewhere with a a, a different language that's being spoken, Um, you know, and he's talked about the reason he went through UNICEF, the reason his name's not on it, the reason he hasn't funded it and because he wanted it to be scalable and he wanted everybody to have access to it. I mean, these are the kinds of things that our retailers around the world are now committing to. you know, aside from all the things that we have heard about around sustainability and, you know, moving towards um, certainly net positive as opposed to net zero. And and there was an urgency around that um, at this conference that I haven't seen before. I mean, so many massive topics in just three days. It sounds like it was an absolute whirlwind tour, particularly when you're talking about retailers becoming leaders and the voices of change. With the federal election coming up, I feel like the Australian public is kind of feeling that now. And your comments uh, last week at Retail Fest, you know, that now is the time for retailers to band together and show the way. You know, if we take the lead and effect change, then everyone else will follow along. I thought it was particularly great. One thing that really interests me is that you've gone to Rome, a city with a very, very long history, and you visited some retail stores that have been around for over 100 years, and they're still staying relevant. Can you tell me more about the tours you took and what these retailers are doing to stay fresh? Retail in Rome was really fascinating because unlike in Australia, we spent a lot of time talking about the high street and we do around the world, like in the UK, similar, you know, we have these planned high streets and CBD locations where you've got these kind of flagship large retail stores where we flock to as consumers because, you know, often they have you know, new um, products that you might not see everywhere else or they've got an experience or, they, or they've got something new to offer that you don't see in every other store. But in Rome, it's actually very different. And, in fact, the high street doesn't exist. What does exist is um, incredible brands that have been around for a really long time that are kind of spattered around these incredible landmarks um, in places which often have a very high vacancy rates and yet people still go there and wander the streets and wander what would present as alleys in any other city. Now, what was really wonderful to see was, I guess, new concepts. So, one of the stores that we were able to visit was a place called Rena Centre, um, which was a department store. And that particular department store um, finds a location um, for their department stores. Um, and when they do that, they base it around the locality of you know, that particular store. So this store, which was in Rome, um, was based very much on the Roman architecture and, in fact, took 11 years to build because when they were building, they discovered all of these artefacts from nine years before Christ. So for our retailers listening, the concept of just taking 11 years to build is extraordinary. But what we saw in that store, which was quite similar to what we see in the US, is a diversification of revenue streams. So they had utilised their space to not only incorporate, you know, these ancient walls, which became quite a feature in their store, but they also had a museum space, event space, as well as a rooftop space where they could focus on various parts of their business, including an entire floor of food. What really struck me about the Rena Centre was the way that it was visually merchandised was 
you know, it showed an incredible attention to detail, but also regardless of how high end the brands were or how kind of middle of the end, you know, the brands were, there was no difference in in, in what you were seeing. So the observations were that everything fit in. It was incredibly curated. And I've also never seen a department store so busy, particularly coming from, you know, somewhere like Australia where we spend a lot of time talking about Meyer and David Jones and their existence and what that looks like and, you know, what their personas are. These guys were absolutely aware as to who they were and they really very much um, used that attention to detail to get it moving. And look, as one store, they employed over a thousand people in that location. Um, Giorgio Armani was one of their visual merchandisers before he went off and became a designer. And they were celebrating stories, which we don't do a particularly good job at um, here. I mean, we don't hear about where someone was a visual merchandiser and, and where they are now. You know, we don't hear about, you know, who was a young retailer in 1982 and, and kind of where they've gone and, and how they progressed. And I think that celebration of you know, the profession of being a retailer and a merchant was really there, but so too were, you know, the tools of the trade, right? The things that are are amazing and, and what make atmosphere within a store come to life is very much around, you know, how things are presented. And so, look, that was one thing. I mean, we also saw a, a, a Nikea pop-up store, which became a permanent store, which was really interesting. So, as opposed to having a large blue box, this was a very small location. You could bring your dogs and your animals into the store. They had originally started just offering kitchens and it made up about 76% of what they were selling. They then diversified into um, your kind of living room um, and other spaces and, in fact, then split off what they were selling to about 26%. 26%, 26%. Um, and it had become one of their most popular models. And in fact, they're now looking at opening similar models in larger cities because there was such a need for that kind of um, offering. We also looked at some of the most incredibly well-known family-owned businesses that had taken space, for instance, Bulgari had, had taken space in Rome in 1905. It was their second store. Originally, it had been, you know, a very small offering where they had predominantly specialised in, in silver and, in fact, over time had purchased the building next door from a noble family within Rome. They had chosen to use, you know, all of the marble amongst other things and to keep the family star in their foyer and then they'd also made reference to um, all of the royal families that they had built jewels for. But what they've now done is split their sales floor into half of what is now a museum. So you can go and view um, jewellery exhibitions and at this time the, the geo geometrics um, exhibition was on and part of that was showing um, some of the seven items that they purchased from Elizabeth Taylor upon her death. So Elizabeth Taylor had a love for Bulgari jewellery. She had fallen in love with her, I think, l late husband, let's say, um, his surname is Burton, um, at the time, and he had made her a number of pieces. They had been able to purchase seven of the items of 10 that they wanted to get back and they're very iconic items which are now sometimes on display in this particular location, which brings in a new... I guess, clientele into their business who perhaps wouldn't feel comfortable going in there um, on an everyday basis. But again, the attention to detail, you know, they talked about, um, at you know, at the back of their store, they'd paid somebody for a period of years to create a mosaic floor. They had created, um, you know, a, 
a light um, or, or a sunlight in their roof so that they could get the true um, experience of the particular stones that they were then dealing with. Um, and they'd kept the original door and, in fact, designed it around an entire shape of a gem so that you knew exactly what you were walking into because they say they're Roman. They don't cut gems the same way, same way as everywhere else. They really have just kind of um, bettered down the fact that they know who they are, they know what they design, and they know, you know, how they present their stones and it's different to everybody else. We were lucky enough to move on to the, the Fenty store and, of course, that is an incredible story started by five sisters. It's now fourth generation. They've continued through, you know, lots of difficult times um, by doing joint ventures with other brands. Um, they had really encapsulated this concept of experience within the, their store. They had one of their master fur designers um, and seamstresses on display working to design, you know, handmade coats and other items that you can basically sit there and, and watch them do it. You could see, you know, all of their their design um scenarios that they had pinned to their walls you know you knew what colors they were using what textures they were going for and in fact the entire store was again based on Rome I mean part of it was this entire marble wall that popped out and, and was similar to that um, you know of the Colosseum there was also you know really interesting parts of their store where when you went into menswear it was very much like a man's wardrobe so it, there was a lot of comfort in there despite the fact that it was a high-end brand despite the fact that you were looking at you know unusual fabrics that you wouldn't see probably on you know men in Australia in an everyday setting um, it was interesting to see the different color palettes and also the way that they would invite people into store and I guess part of that and, and what we haven't seen in Australia take to too much is this concept of scenting so a lot of these stores had had specific scents designed for their consumer. So as you walked in, you would smell the store to trigger a, a memory or um, an emotive response to being in that store so that you became bonded with it. And, and all of these stores, particularly Bulgarian and certainly Fenty, had had these scents designed around the brand. So the Fenty store had a scent that was designed around the fifth sister um, and the only way to describe it is it really did smell like um, – your old aunt, but not in a bad way, in a really familiar way that you, there was a certain level of comfort in terms of entering the store and, and what they created with their textures and and just kind of the story was that you wanted to be there. And funnily enough, they were placed right next to H&M, right? So not in this concept of, you know, everyone in high end has to be in a high end location. You know, we saw Bulgari, Bulgari with multiple stores around um, around Rome. But it was really fascinating to see kind of their placement when it came to leasing and tenancy. Um, and look, some of the other brands that we visited, you know, Decathlon or, or Geox were really interesting, again, in terms of how they invited people to store, you know, lots of kind of digital um, education and, and certainly merchandising was, was very much about being familiar or accessible. Um, you know, we certainly saw a movement towards whatever the Rome clientele was. So if you went to Decathlon, there was a lot about bikes. You know, it was a lot about, you know, being able to purchase parts for, you know, your your motorcycle amongst other things. So really, really interesting um, to see, see what they were doing. So it sounds a lot like what we were hearing last week about how the focus for brick and mortar stores is less about sales per square foot than it is about creating almost a temple for your brand. 
which is very exciting and it's a new way to think about your physical space and how you do your visual merchandising. So let's now also talk what was happening on the main stage as well. Was there anything that really surprised you or inspired you that you want to bring back to Australia? There were so many that inspired me um, and I think it was really kind of across the board. Um, We saw the Chief Customer Service um, Officer for ASOP present. Um, It was also recognised for an award. There were only two awards um, that were given out at this particular conference and and she was named um, as one of those award winners for her contribution to industry. And, in fact, she was actually ASOP's first employee um, and has has been with them ever since. And I guess, um, you know, what was really interesting about ASOP was how they were changing the way that they thought about customer contact and how each of their stores was almost a pinnacle in terms of community contact through COVID. So the reports were that people were coming back and, and just kind of itching to have human contact in an ASOP store that was renowned for kind of, you know, the concept of touch within the store. So you would go there and they would show you the products and they would apply them to your skin and there was this um, kind of connection that you built with your local ASOP store. Of course, with COVID-19, things like that change. And in fact, what they've now done is created spaces where you can mirror um, the person with your movements um, that's serving you to create that connection, but in a different way using movement. So this kind of concept of senses really did um, resonate throughout the entire conference and, and was really fascinating. People like the founders of Whole Foods, of course, um, certainly the CEO of Levi's, um, you know, some of the really interesting stuff that we're seeing out of supply chain that was happening were really, really inspiring. Um, but, of course, I think it was also this concept that um, – competitors should become partners. So as opposed to just always being, you know, us first them, particularly in a very competitive environment, working together in order to solve logistics problems and to reduce carbon footprints was something that was really, really key and quite, um, you know, a new idea because, you know, we see in Australia, certainly, in, you know, in our space, in the union space, of course, employee unions sometimes can approach things as, you know, very much us versus employee unions. You know, it doesn't matter if we say the sky's blue, they're going to say the sky's red. Um, And regardless of how you kind of approach a problem, unfortunately, sometimes you find yourself back in those same trenches you've been in for years. This concept of making your competitors your partners really resonated um, with me. And And I guess that's probably something that we've always tried to do at the NRA is work with lots of different organizations that have different perspectives because we think that those different perspectives get a better outcome um, when it comes to the ecosystem. And this is what these brands were really trying to get across. And and for many of them, they'd achieved it in different markets. In Australian retail, I mean, all you ever hear about is X versus Y, particularly with some major brands that we won't name here. And you are absolutely correct that we have done that during COVID. I mean, you formed a coalition almost with the Franchise Council and the Shopping Centre Council and many other councils to make sure that we were, you know, representing retail as best we possibly could. Uh, now, offline, you mentioned this amazing sort of hack games that you attended and I need to hear all about it. Look, there is this wonderful concept at the World Retail Congress where they take a number of universities across the world and they provide them with a problem. In this case, it was solving um, an issue for fast fashion um, and providing a solution. And, And the trick was that they actually had to go 
and speak with or use as a case study a business in their country that was manufacturing in their country um, and that was selling within the country of origin of that university team. And, of course, that meant that we saw Italy present, we saw Japan present, and we saw the Netherlands present um, and, you know, get to those finals. And, and then, of course, there was a winner that was crowned. Um, I think there's a little bit of contention around who should have won and, and, and why. Um, however, the presentations were incredibly professional. They were certainly backed by universities. A lot of work had been done on them. You know, a lot of the case, they, they were actually MBA students. Um, and just getting, I guess, a different perspective, particularly from young people about, you know, what we should be doing in retail and how we should be solving problems um, was really inspiring. And of course, we would love to take a team um, next year from Australia and, and we will be making moves to do that here and hosting our own hackathon in the next 12 months with university teams, um, you know, to make sure we get the right team on the world stage. Absolutely. We need to represent Australia for retail on the world stage. Um, okay, if out of the entire conference you had one thing you wished for Australian retailers to take out of it, what do you want to see come back? I think this concept of net positive, you know, I think that gone are the days where we can talk about net zero. I think now for us and, and for our retailers, you know, our retailers are doing a lot of work in this space, but this is genuinely now about putting back because we don't have a lot of time um, as a planet. And I think that we've lulled ourselves in a false sense of security and certainly the politics around this concept of, you know, net zero, or, you know, has really muddied the water. And I think it is really about as leaders, you know, regardless of what size your business is or, you know, what part of retail you're in, it's about being courageous as opposed to complacent. And this is the time where we need to see leaders basically rise and make some difficult decisions and make some difficult choices and to do things differently for the benefit of everyone around them because where one person kind of stands up and, and you know, some great stuff, you know, we know MJ Bale is, is actually shortly about to become the first Australian business that will be certified as, in fact, net positive, um, we see others follow because they see the benefits that, you know, they see the productivity gains, they see the, you know, just simply the value creation and the proposition and the relationships that they build with their consumer. And it's about having, I guess, legitimate relationships in this game. It's not about just selling wares, you know, we're not as transactional as what you would think, you know, within this space. I mean, yeah, it's about building a brand, building a community. We've seen that happening for years here. Have we seen overseas similar issues with regards to staff shortages and the great resignation? Was that discussed on stage at all? Look, there's no doubt that the experiences within Asia, the Middle East, Europe and the US mirror exactly what we've seen here. What we have to understand is that at the moment, you know, according to Deloitte's head of economics, um, you know, Europe's staring down the barrel of 11% inflation, right? Um, so, so the cost of, I guess, supply chain is absolutely relevant when it comes to all markets. Certainly fuel is, is something that is high on everyone's priority list, but the skill shortage is very much something that was spoken of on a regular basis. And it was about reinvesting, you know, within 
your business, making sure that your business is somewhere that your people want to be, that they can be safely and, and making sure that I guess you were attracting talent. But there was absolutely no doubt that the great resignation was real, that border closures had absolutely um, played a major part in that. Um, and people were desperately trying to get back to normal. But of course, you know, we're in a place like Italy, we're in a place like Rome where it is a hotspot. You know, there are still mask wearing. There is a whole raft of things that are occurring. Um, and it's really become about, you know, I guess just adapting. And I think the one thing that was really clear is that, you know, the only thing we can be certain of is that everything is uncertain. Yeah. I mean, I know you had a jam-packed three days there, but were you able to take any time to do anything for fun? because I know Rome is one of your favourite overseas destinations. I did. I was really lucky enough that I was travelling with one of our board members, Alice Barbary, who is the CEO of Universal Store, and Alice has um, a prolific love of art. Um, and the last time I was in Rome, I was unable to get to the Sistine Chapel, um, but we were able to do it this time round, which was really fantastic. Um, and of course, you know, we, we kind of took ourselves on walking tours each night, um, to see what we could find because we are particularly, um, probably direction challenge. In fact, I think Alice <laughs> said to me a hundred times I could lose myself in a closet. Um, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. She's so not wrong. <laughs> we absolutely, we absolutely were able to find all of the things. Um, and in fact, we did all of them except the Colosseum was closed when we got there. And I think Alice got to do the Colosseum and the, and the Pantheon um, the day after I had left. So um, we, were, we were very, very lucky um, to simply you know, be able to take in the sights and, and just kind of observe, you know, what was happening in somewhere like Rome, um, which really, you know, is part of kind of the shopping epicenter when it comes to Rome, when it comes to Europe, um, you know, outside of Milan, certainly in Italy. But the travel is far from over, it seems. Coming up next month, um, actually, it will be two weeks tomorrow, uh, the National Retail Expo in Sydney at the International Convention Centre. So it's our very first time running this one and you'll be emceeing the whole day. And then in 2023, off to Vietnam for a trade delegation. Yes. You know, it, it is conference time, people. If you're listening to this, I mean, and you want to learn more about retail and retail wares and who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong and, you know, what they've learned, you know, now is the time. Um, so, certainly the National Retail Expo is coming up and it's something I'm really passionate about and excited about because, you know, we haven't seen anything like it for a really long time, not run by an industry organisation, not with people that are on the ground in such diverse um parts of our sector and I think that it's got a really really balanced agenda and I'm thoroughly looking forward to hearing what everybody has to say and not to mention the opportunity to see each other face to face and network and make those partnerships we've been talking about and now Dominique the final question all our guests are asked on this podcast what are you watching or reading right now um, I'm I'm watching the circus, which is a um, a documentary about the U.S. politics, which is on Stan. Um, it's really fascinating. It's run by four journalists that come from opposing sides of politics, and they kind of travel around the country interviewing every senator and um, you know everyone kind of from the current administration through to you know Trump supporters to everybody. And it's um it's very interesting to see, I guess, the different perspectives um, and the the very, very different views um, in a place so as large as the US. Um, and then in terms of um, what am I reading, um, funnily enough, 
on the plane, I started reading Midnight Sun. And Midnight Sun <laughs> is the Twilight book that is written from the perspective of Edward Cullen. However, I have not been able to kind of break into it. So I suspect I'm not going to finish it, to be honest. Um, is that because I, I think that's because I was reading um, it. <laughs> I just, I thought I would give it a go. And I loved the Twilight books at the time, but I just haven't been able to, um, I haven't been able to get into it. And I actually remember with the books, it would take me, probably a good 10 chapters before I was, you know, in it. Um, so potentially it's, I need to keep reading, but, at, you know, at this time that's that's where I'm at. Thanks so much for your time, Dom. It is always a pleasure and we will see all of our listeners at the Expo in Sydney. And as we finish up on today's episode of the Retail Smarts podcast, we have an exciting new segment to announce. Coming on our next episode of the Retail Smarts podcast, Dr. Jason Pallant from Swinburne University is going to have a regular guest feature with the Retail Research Roundup. Jason, tell us what that is. Oh, thank you, Beck. I'm really excited about this. This is an idea that's been kicking around for, with me for a while. I mean, as you will know, and, and as we talked about when I was a guest previously, like I'm really passionate about the trying to share, I guess, academic research and work in a more commercial and practical setting, right? Because blending that those worlds of academia and corporate consulting and, and applied research, I see all of this fascinating academic research that is being done, but is locked behind these journal paywalls. And let's be honest, written in a way that, you know, a lot of practitioners, even if they could get their hands on these papers, might not understand or be willing to sort of uh, sit and read through. So the idea of, of this segment is I'm going to go through and look at all of those journals, particularly those that focus on retail. And there's multiple of them, right? There's at least three pretty highly ranked uh, marketing journals that have retail in their name and a bunch of the other journals do retail work because it's obviously a really important sector. So I'm going to read through them. I'm going to look through them and try to see what I think is some of the most practically interesting and relevant papers or research in there and then try to translate it, right? So go beyond some of the methodology that's in there and some of the academic speak that I'm used to and my colleagues are used to and we're really sort of forced to do for journals, try to unpack it and bring it back and sort of share what some of those main insights really are and hopefully get into a bit of discussion around what it means and how retailers can actually use it. So, I'm really excited. I was having a look at just one of the biggest journals, the Journal of Retailing, right? Obviously, pretty relevant to this this show and our industry. One of the most prestigious journals in marketing overall, but particularly in the retail setting. And like some of the latest articles in there are fascinating. There's stuff around dark side of upselling promotions. There's new ways to measure omni-channel customer experience. There's drivers of retail loyalty, and so I'm really excited to dive in and hopefully bring some of those insights to your listeners and to the industry. Amazing. I think we're all going to be learning an awful lot on the Retail Smarts podcast over the next few months. Jason, thanks so much. We look forward to seeing you next week. Yes, see you then.
Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.